Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Luke is the author of the book of Acts and what Luke is really good at is He's really good at uh, foreshadowing what's coming. And in the very first chapter of Acts, he gives us these words from Jesus. In fact, let's read this verse together. Ready, begin. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What's beautiful about the way Luke has decided to record this history is Acts chapter 1, the 8th verse, is really the template or the outline for the whole book. The entire book is this outline of the Holy Spirit coming upon the church um, and then them becoming witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where the church started. We see the Holy Spirit come. We see Peter preach this amazing message, very similar to Paul's message we'll look at today. And he recounts the history of Israel. And as he does, he preaches about the very fact that we need to uh, embrace Jesus's death, his burial, his resurrection. And this is just a short time after the resurrection. And he preaches it, and many thousands of people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This happens for a few chapters. That first phrase, uh, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, is the church starting. The next phrase it says is, and in all Judea and Samaria. What ends up happening is because of the influence of the church and the pure volume of the followers of Jesus Christ growing exponentially, they became a threat to the status quo. They became a threat to what was existing. They became a threat to the Roman occupation. They became a threat to the religious elite that still held on to their old ways. And so with that threat, they faced persecution. They faced these moments where the church of Jesus Christ, the followers of Jesus Christ, had to find within themselves whether they not they would continue to pursue Jesus or whether they would fall apart. In that moment, the church now scatters. The church had started in Jerusalem. Now it's scattering to Judea and Samaria. And because of that, we see all these other churches referenced and highlighted in the book of Acts for a few chapters. There's the church of Galilee, the church of uh, the Samaritans, there's the church of Antioch, all of these different churches because the follower of Jesus did not stay in one space, they ended up scattering. And more people were able to reach the gospel, which is, by the way, the very opposite of what the religious elite and the Roman occupation thought would happen with persecution. Their goal with the persecution is to reduce the influence of the church, and because of their efforts, the church scatters, and actually the influence of the church expands. Do you see that, how that applies to you? Because if we just gather here on Sundays and we try to contain our influence here, uh, really the purpose of the church is to scatter outside of it through the week, through the years, through the months, through the weeks, so that our influence grows. We're now in this final phase or this final section of the book of Acts. And so we're now looking at this last part of verse 8 to the end of the earth. And we're in the very beginning of that uh, process of the gospel not only being contained in Jerusalem anymore, not only scattering to the parts that are just around, but now followers of Jesus Christ are now sending others 
in missionary efforts to uh, to reach people with the gospel. And so today, as we get started, we'll be focusing on this question, whose salvation? Everyone say that? Whose salvation? We're going to focus on whose salvation. Uh, Acts chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 13, if you have your Bibles. Verse 13 says this, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, everyone say Paphos, Paphos. came to Perga and Pamphylia, I won't make you say those, uh, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, when you're reading uh, uh, ancient scriptures and you start seeing cities that don't sound familiar, it can kind of get easy to get lost, right? So there's a map included in your outline. Uh, we'll have this map up for a moment just to try to get an idea of where Paul is uh, traveling right now. The ship from Paphos docked at the coastal city of Perga to travel to the mainland uh, about 135 miles inland is Sidia, uh, Antioch. The general area of where Paul's going to be at is called Galatia, which should sound familiar because Paul wrote a church to the Galatians from his time there. He addressed a letter to these churches that is preserved, of course, in the New Testament. Sidia and Antioch was located at the height of roughly uh, 3,600 feet in the Alps. And so Paul, uh, later in Corinthians and other scriptures, Paul mentions having an ailment that plagued his body. There's a lot of speculation of what Paul might have uh, endured. Some say that Paul was a little blind. Uh, he couldn't see very well. Uh, Paul said uh, uh, he was known to be short of stature. And so uh, there might have been that. Uh, some people believe that he might have um, contracted a disease during this very first journey possibly malaria, while residing uh, in these coastal plains. And so this kind of gives you an idea of how Paul was traveling around. We're not in Jerusalem anymore, right? We're traveling now. We're going to these different places. Paul is now sharing the gospel with people groups who have otherwise uh, maybe have heard of Jesus. Maybe there's been a few followers of Jesus, but there's no organized effort of followers of Jesus Christ. As you look at the verse in verse 13, you'll notice a shift in Luke's description of Paul as well. Because uh, very early on when we meet uh, Paul, his name is what? Help me out, church. His name is Saul, right? That is, was his given name by his dad. Uh, Paul was kind of a nickname. Uh, Paul means little or short. Um, again, it could be a reference to his stature, but in the course of time, he starts going by Paul. Luke starts by calling him Saul. Then he says Saul and Barnabas. Then he says uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas. And now it's Paul and his, what is it? Companions. It's an interesting shift in Paul's influence. Paul didn't wake up one morning uh, after his uh, Damascus Road experience with Jesus and then all of a sudden have all the influence and leverage within the church. This took months, if not years, for him to attain. But now as we're in Acts chapter 13, you'll see Luke reference him completely different than he ever has before. It's Paul and his companions. It kind of shows the growth Paul has experienced. It shows the influence that he now carries. The last statement of verse 13 says this, and John left them and came to Jerusalem or returned to Jerusalem. We'll talk about this later in a few chapters, but John Mark uh, returns to Jerusalem. He leaves Paul and uh, uh, the other companions, as it were, 
And uh, there's been a lot of debate on why John would have left the effort at this crucial stage. We'll talk about that in a few chapters. We read on in verse 14, it says this, But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Sidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Verse 15 says this, After the reading from the law and the prophets, the ruler of the synagogue sent a message to them, uh, saying, Brothers, if you have a word, any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So what is happening here is we're getting a window into what was a gathering like for followers of Jesus Christ in the synagogue in the first century. So this is kind of the order of service. In your program or your bulletin, we put an order of service just to let you know uh, where you are in the service. This is the order of service for the synagogue. They would first have opening prayers. Uh, and they would uh, pray uh, prayers that they had learned as children. They would then read from the law. They would read from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. And then there would be a reading from the prophets. They would read from Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel or one of the other prophets. And then after that, they prayed. They read the uh, Pentateuch. They read from the prophets. They would then open it up for anyone who was a learned man to be able to speak in the synagogue. If someone knowledgeable was in the room, they were invited to talk about the reading. And so they invited Paul to speak. Before we look at what he said, if you're following in our notes, Paul took advantage of opportunities within culture to share the good news of the gospel. They're followers of Jesus, but they knew the Sabbath was this opportunity to gather. They knew this was an opportunity in the synagogue, and I believe they probably prayed for the opportunity for one of them to be invited to share as they were invited guests. So Paul, within his culture, within this service, uh, took advantage of the opportunity within culture to share the good news of the gospel. It is a good time for us to just embrace and to think about uh, what opportunities do you and I have within culture to share the good news of the gospel. We are going to come into... Uh, the most peaceful, relaxing, stress-free time of the years in the next two and a half months, right? <laughs> Are you with me? <laughs> How many of you have a family gathering coming up? How many of you have one that you're not looking forward to? Don't point at people if they're in the room. That's rude. It's uncalled for, even if it's true. You're going to have a chance, I guarantee you, in the next two and a half months to maybe pray over a meal. Well, you know what an awesome opportunity that is? To just pray the gospel to your family and to your friends. And you get the opportunity within culture, because it's appropriate, you'll probably be invited if you're the Jesus person in your friend group or if you're the Jesus person in your family, they'll say, which I am obviously, right? Every time I'm in a gap, Daniel, would you pray? Sure, why not? And I have now turned that into this opportunity. And if there's something I believe the Holy Spirit wants them to hear, if there's something that I, I really think that they need to hear from Jesus or the Holy Spirit, I'll use the prayer as the opportunity to thank my Heavenly Father in a way that allows them 
a window into my own faith. So when you're asked in the next two and a half months during this relaxing, stress-free family gathering, you get to say, Lord, I thank you for salvation. I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for giving me hope, not only for today, but for tomorrow. Thank you for giving me a foundation of faith from which to live my life. Thank you, my friends, my family. Bless this meal. Rub-a-dub-dub, let's eat the grub. <laughs> like, make it your own, but I'm telling you, you have these opportunities within culture that are appropriate for you to share the gospel. Um, how many of you send Christmas cards out? Right? How many of you like getting Christmas cards? I love it. We have a space in our wall, and I just put them all up, and it starts with two or three, and by the end of Christmas season, there are dozens and dozens. So the reason I send Christmas cards is because I want them in return. So if I send them early, it gives you plenty of time to send one back. I usually try to send them right after Thanksgiving. You have the opportunity in your card to say something that's so much more meaningful and significant because it's an opportunity for you to share what your wishes are for them this Christmas season. So what would it look like if you were thoughtful about the message that's being shared on that card? To maybe include a verse, to maybe include a good, uh, a well-wishing, to maybe include a prayer that you found, to maybe just include um, this, this note to why you live the way you do, why you have this hope, why the holidays are so, you have this moment within culture to share the gospel. Do you see what I'm saying? Here's the thing, you're gonna go through the next two and a half months anyway, you might as well do it with a little bit of focus and care and attention in a way that could significantly impact people. You're gonna have the opportunity to put church and God above sports in the next three months. And for some of you, this is not a big deal. You do it all the time. And then there's me. And you have to choose. This Tuesday is the start of basketball season. It's a national holiday for me. <laughs> if we didn't have staff meeting, I wouldn't come to work. I will come to work. And you know what I'll do that night while the Lakers are on TV? Hopefully, because Libby and I are both feeling well now, we'll still have 14 people in our home doing a Bible study because we're going to prioritize that in our life. There's these opportunities within culture where we get to show people what's important to us. I love that Paul is there. He's there with his companions. And as his goal is to share the gospel, he goes to this place where he knows other people who are either God, uh, God and Jesus people, or maybe they're Jewish people that just fear and reverence God. We'll see that in a moment with the words that he says. But he goes to this place, he goes into the synagogue, and I believe he prayed, Lord, Jesus, give me the opportunity to speak. And in that moment, he was given this opportunity, and he could have talked about Moses for 20 minutes, and they would have been fine. He could have talked about uh, Jerusalem and the captivity. He could have talked about uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He could have talked about all of these other things, and yet he takes this unique opportunity to share the gospel. You will have this opportunity, folks. 
We've talked about it before. Every one of us can think back to a moment in our life where we go, oh, I remember who brought me to Jesus, right? I remember the Sunday school teacher. I remember the uh, pastor. I remember the friend. I remember the mother or the father. Um, and every one of you can, has that experience of who you can point to. Guess what? You get to be that people to someone else. You get to be a part of that story. So look for those opportunities within culture. We're going to look now at the actual message that he shares, which is just a powerful message. We'll begin in verse 16. It says this, Paul stood up and he motioned with his hand, said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Verse 17, the God of the people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Verse 18, and for about 40 years, he put them uh, up with them. I'm sorry. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Verse 22, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus as he promised. It's a beautiful recollection of Israel's history. He talks about the selection of the patriarchs, which that would have made sense to them, the audience. It would have made sense to them to start with uh, the selection of these patriarchs, and both Saul and David are mentioned. It talks about the escape from Egypt and their freedom from bondage, the time that was spent in the desert, the time conquering Canaan, the time of the judges and the establishment of this royal monarchy from Saul and David. But do you see where he ends? Verse 23, it ends with Jesus. Everything pointed to Jesus. In our notes, the study of Israel's past demonstrates that God has a plan for human history and we are part of God's comprehensive plan for salvation since we are in Jesus. It's just really an important thing for us to grab the study of, why do we study the Old Testament? Why is it important for us to understand what happened before Jesus? If it's all about Jesus, does it really matter about Moses' time and the Israelites' time in slavery and the kingdom and the royal kingdom and how the kingdom split and the captivity in Babylon and then the prophets and the rebuilding and Ezra being invited back and Nehemiah being, like, why is it important that we get all of that history? I've said it before, but uh, the Old Testament is like this fully furnished room that's beautifully decorated, that's very dimly lit, right? It's hard to make your way around the room and not everything makes sense. And when you read the New Testament, part of what happens is the New Testament shines this bright light on the room. And now you can see why the pieces are there. You can see why the furniture is in this spot. You can see the storylines and everything coming together. And the reason why the Old Testament is so important is because it fulfills, it paints a picture for what's coming next. And 
part of Paul's message is you know about the histories of old. You know about the patriarchs. You know about our forefathers. You know about our, uh, our captivity to Egypt. You know how we got freed. We know about the times of the judges. Then you asked for a king and we gave you a king and now we have David. But don't you recognize people? Everything points to Jesus. Jesus is the very fulfillment of it. In the New Testament, Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Everything talked about in the Old Testament points us to Jesus. And we, within that, uh, the purpose of history is Jesus. And within the purpose is God's plan for human history, which includes a plan for you and I. It's such a beautiful thing to know. Ephesians talks about before the very foundations of the world, you were in his thoughts. Psalms 139 talks about the fact that while you were in your mother's womb, God knew you. He formed you. He had this purpose for you. He knew your thoughts and his ways, your ways, and everything points to the fact that not only does everything point to Jesus, but because it does, we are part of God's plan. It's an important thing we embrace because the alternative is following our own plan. And in the choice between our own plan and God's plan, many of us just discount the fact that God's plan exists for our life. It's beautiful because uh, what ends up happening for Paul is he lived this out, right? Because for so much of his life, the Old Testament and everything that happened and all the history that happened was all Saul was concerned with. And then he met Jesus, and what happened for him is everything else made sense. And this is what I hope Jesus does for you in your life, that when you come to the place where you embrace who Jesus is and the life-giving hope that he provides for us, everything else in life starts to make sense. It doesn't mean it gets easy, but everything starts making sense, and you see the purpose of his plan. We move to this discussion about John the Baptist from Paul, which is cool because John the Baptist is the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? He's the prophet. He's the voice of the wilderness. So in Paul's words, we read in verse 24, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Here's John the Baptist, and he's talking about the repentance of all the people in Israel. And many thought John the Baptist was the one they're supposed to repent to. Many thought he would be the, uh, the leader of this movement. And John says, it's not me. I'm simply preparing the way for who's coming after me. Paul goes on in verse 26, brothers, the sons of family, the sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophet, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. What ended up happening is these uninformed people rejected Jesus. They handed him over to Pilate for execution. This is what Paul is talking about, verse 24. And though they found him, Jesus, no guilt, worthy of death, they asked Paul, Pilate to have him executed. 
And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. You see what Paul's doing? He's given this moment where he's able to speak about the gospel within culture. And he uses the Old Testament, something they were familiar with, something that they understood. And he starts painting this picture of how it points to Jesus. And then he starts explaining what Jesus actually did. Verse 29, it says, when they carried out all that was written, they took him down from the tree, the tree being the cross, right? He was crucified. They took him down and they laid him in a tomb. We get to verse 30, glorious verse 30. Let's read this together. Ready, begin. But God raised him from the dead. Such beautiful words. Man attempted to kill God. They attempted, uh, they attempted to destroy Jesus and his teachings. The influence of Jesus and his followers was getting too great, so they thought there's only one way we can handle this. They tried persecuting him. They tried limiting his effectiveness. They tried uh, bullying Jesus and his followers. And when none of that worked, they thought the only way we can fulfill this is by killing him. But God raised him from the dead. They thought the only way to remove Jesus' influence was to remove him and destroy him. And so man attempted to kill God. They attempted to kill Jesus, and they did his best to oppose him. But God raised him from the dead. God was stronger than this man's sin and disobedience. And because Jesus rose from the dead and defeated sin and the death, we now have hope. Why? Because God raised him from the dead. This was a movement that was coming, and it was taking over Jerusalem and all all these people were getting healed and saved and now they were getting hope and Jesus was teaching and preaching and all of a sudden they thought how do we remove this uh, per, uh, this person from our existence how do we stop his influence and they decided to kill him but God raised him from the dead Folks, as we think about our own life, there will be moments in our life, there will be times in our life where this truth must be the prevailing voice in our life that God raised him from the dead. You're going to hear about Jesus. People are going to doubt his existence. They're going to doubt his sincerity. They're going to question his motives. And they'll affirm his life, but deny his deity. And in that moment, you need to recognize that God raised him from the dead. There will be times where Jesus' motives were questioned. There will be times where Jesus' own words are going to be thrown at you in the face to discourage you, to oppress you, to give you an opposition. And these are the verses that should ring true in your mind. God raised him from the dead. It serves as a beautiful picture in our lives. That in a situation where we feel hopeless... In the situations where uh, we have no hope, where it feels like we're alone and it feels like uh, whatever dream that was inside of us is dead, whatever uh, thoughts we had for our future are dead, maybe a relationship is broken, maybe it's really hard to see how you get past this week, let alone the next two and a half months, and you start looking at the way your life is set up and you think, I don't have any hope, this thing is dead from the beginning, and you let these words ring true. God raised him from the dead. Romans tells us the same spirit which raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. Boy, I, uh, those are the types of words 
those are the types of verses that need to be the very foundation for our faith. He goes on in verse 31 and he says this, God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. It's interesting because in Paul's little sermon here, he's more interested in actual events than in philosophy or even theology. He doesn't talk about the value of Scripture in their life. He doesn't talk about how they should be praying. He doesn't talk about uh, the role of baptism in their faith. He simply declares the acts, the events that have happened. And although it includes these elements, Christianity is more than a philosophy or a code of ethics. Christianity is simply a declaration of facts about what God has accomplished. Now, are there ways you should live your life? Yeah, we believe so. We believe there's values and ethics in Scripture that contain the moral compass for how we should live life. Are there rules and uh, about our faith? Well, um, in the same way you don't want to disappoint your parents, in the same way that you don't want to disappoint yourself, in the very same way we live our lives in a certain way so we don't disappoint our Heavenly Father. But at the end of the day, Christianity is really this. It's more than a philosophy or just a code of ethics or this cosmic to-do list or a vending machine of sorts that if you do the right things and push the right buttons, you'll get the right results. Christianity is simply this. It's a statement It's a declaration of facts about what God has accomplished. Do you see what Paul uh, did? All he did when given the opportunity to speak into culture is he starts laying out the groundwork of all these different events, all of these different facts that have happened. And when he gets to Jesus, he simply continues laying out the facts that Jesus was sent from God, that he was persecuted by his own people. And because you didn't receive him, you gave him over to Pilate. And although there was no guilt found in him, Pilate executed him. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen by all these witnesses, witnesses who were still alive at the time that Paul was saying these words. And so he gave them the opportunity to see that this Christianity, this thing that we believe in, is a declaration of the facts of what has already happened. Paul continues and he says this, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Verse 35. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruptions. For David, he had served the, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Paul is painting the picture that Jesus is the unique son of God, that he was holy even on the work of the cross. He goes on in verse 38, let it be known to you therefore brothers that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Let me read that one again. Through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Verse 39, and by, ev- by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could have not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, 
lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Look back at verse 40 one more time. I'm sorry, verse 39. He says this, By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses was a big deal. This was the whole foundation of their faith. This is the reason why they were Jewish, is because God's people was given a very special word from the Lord. And so for generations and generations, the Jewish people absorbed, embraced the law of Moses as the way to be the children of God. It was the way that they would earn God's favor. It was the way that they lived their lives. And now Paul all of a sudden is telling him, boy, by this man, Jesus, you'll be freed from everything that the law could never free you from. Here is the sum total of what Paul is explaining here. When he says everything is, uh, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. You know what the law of Moses could not free them from? It was judgment. It was the judgment of a holy God. You know why the first five books exist? You know why the law exists? For the first time in over 400 years, the Israelites are now free. Okay? So for 400 years, they're slaves. For 400 years, they were told what time to wake up. They were told what to do that day, what to eat, how to work. They were told when to go back. And then the next day, guess what? They did it all over again. There was no day off. There was no time off for, uh, for vacation. There was no time off for maternity leave or paternity leave. Uh, they didn't have two weeks off. They didn't have weekends. They didn't have nights off. For 400 years, they were slaves. Now, think about it with me. Now Moses leads them out of Egypt. Not without difficulty. They had to endure some difficulty for sure. But now they're standing at the banks of the Jordan River. And they go through this Jordan River that was this mighty river. And now it's been cleared. And it's like this aisle right down the middle of this church. They're able to walk on dry ground. So they walk on dry ground. The waters then collapse. Right? Egypt's soldiers, pharaohs are now drowned in this. And they get to the other side, no longer pursued by the enemy. They're free. And they look at each other and they say, now what? Now what do we do? Well, we go get the promised land. Yeah, how? How do we, how do we go there? How do we organize like, who's in charge? How do we do this? So God gives the law really as a basis for them to have this successful society. For the first time ever, they got to make rules about how they lived with one another and how they were part of the same city and part of the same community. And so now they have this law. They have this guidebook of what it means to be a successful society, what it means to honor one another. And in every part of the law, there is judgment, right? If you didn't fulfill the law in this way, this is what you had to do. This is how you had to appease that sin. Um, and, and, and in the minor offenses, 
the judgment was fairly minor. Fairly minor. You read it for yourself. You decide. (laughs) And if the offense was greater, the judgment was greater. There were times in the wilderness where they had to uh, put to death members of their brothers and sisters because they violated God's law. Uh, Yes or no, were they freed from captivity? Yeah. Were they free from Egypt? Yes. Were they free from that oppressor? Yes. Were they free from judgment? No. Judgment still existed because the lost was there. Jesus comes and in the New Testament he says, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. And what he means by that is this. I came to fulfill it because you never could on your own. So Jesus comes. He's, very, he's the very embodiment of God Almighty. He is God's son. He lives this sinless, perfect life. He, uh, he does all these miracles. He, he teaches and, and he heals and he provides hope. And then people turn against him and he's on the cross all of a sudden. And he's dying on the cross. And then he says these words, forgive them, right? They know not what they do. And then he says, it is finished. The work he came to do for us, he's finished. And in that moment, Jesus took the responsibility of the law and he took upon it himself so that we would not have to. So when Paul is preaching this message and he says, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses, what he's saying is this, Jesus took the penalty of sin that the law demanded in order that we might live this amazing free life. We're free from guilt. We're free from sin. We're free from the shame of sin. And so the question for you and I is this, Whose salvation do you want to embrace? Open your Bibles to John 3. John chapter 3. It's not in your notes, or you're going to have to turn to it. There should be Bibles in your pew if you want to reach there, or you can look in Scripture or on your phone. John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. You probably know it by heart, or at least part of it, right? We're going to read a few verses, and I want you to consider whose salvation are you trusting in? John chapter 3 and verse 16 says this, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. So the salvation is Jesus is this, everyone who believes in him him will not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians 2 says it this way, it's by grace you are saved, not of your own works, otherwise you would boast about it. It's the gift of God. God knew that if he gave us a formula, if he gave us a checklist, this cosmic checklist or this way of living up, and when we got to the tenth and final things, we would say, not thank you, God. Thank you for giving me this salvation. We would say, look what I did. Right? We would post it to social media as fast as we could and say, I've done it. I've made it. So-and-so is currently blessed. Right? Right? 
because we would fulfill it and it would be our own thing that we're so grateful for. This own thing that we have accomplished. But Ephesians tells us it's by the grace of God you're saved, not by your own works. Otherwise, we'd boast about it. It is the very gift of God. This is God's salvation, that you could never earn it on your own. But because of what he did on the cross, we have eternal life. You say, well, what other salvation is it? Whose salvation? Are there two salvation? Yeah, there are. There God's salvation, and then there's your salvation that you choose. Look at verse 18, John 3, right after the most famous verse in the Bible. Therefore, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. Verse 19, and the judgment is based on this fact. God's light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light, so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Verse 19 says it this way. Uh, Verse 18, anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in him. So the salvation that you get to choose is God's salvation, the very gift of God by the very grace of God. If you don't choose God's salvation, you are choosing yours. If you don't choose God's salvation, you're choosing yours. And what you're saying in that moment is this. I understand that God has a gift. I understand that it's free, but I want to try to do this my way. And in that moment, the Bible says that you are already being judged for not believing in him. This is very hard for the Jewish people to understand because for so long, they believed themselves to be God's people. For so long, they had been called the children of God. Imagine growing up and you were just called the child of God. That you and your family, you were part of God's special nation. His holy nation. And then all of a sudden one day someone says, yeah, um, about that. God has a gift and you have to receive it. Well, I'm already a child of God. Are you? Have you received his gift? Have you declared him as your Lord? And I feel like so many people, uh, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here in the service, and because we go to church, because we live in America, which is a Christian nation, right? Because, uh, I say that in quotes, by the way, Um, because we're American, because we go to church, because we have these things that we have access to or that we've been told all of our lives, we say, but no, I... I am a Christian. I am his child. I am. And what does scripture say? Many of those who say, Lord, Lord. I'll say, I never knew you. What is he talking about? He's talking about this. What does it look like for you to choose God's salvation? Let me read it again. John 3 and verse 16 and we'll close. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, 
so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I want so much for you, for your faith to be more than a Sunday experience. I want your faith to be something that you strap on like work boots Monday morning and you go out into your week. I want it to be the center and the foundation of your world. Jesus says, I'm come to give you life and I'm going to give it to you between Sunday, between 1030 and noon. No, he says, I've come to give you life and I've come to give it to you abundantly so that it fills all of your days, all of your moments, so that as you go through your week, it's not something you attend, but your faith is something you live out. So I ask you, church, whose salvation are you trusting in? Whose salvation? Let me pray for you this morning. Father, as we consider this scripture, as we consider Paul's message in the book of Acts, I am compelled to pray for us as a church. I'm moved to pray for those uh, of us who have named the name of Christ, maybe from an early age, maybe in our late years, but we believe you are our Lord and our Savior, and we have declared you Lord of our life. Father, I pray that we would embrace the reality of the salvation that we get to experience so that when there's the opportunities in culture to share the gospel, Lord, Maybe with one of the examples we talked about today or maybe with something unique that comes into one of our church family's lives. I pray that we would not cower in those moments, that we would not hide our faith in those moments, but that we would boldly declare with love, with grace, and with kindness, Jesus and his hope for the world. Father, I pray that as we consider scripture and the, the ancient scriptures and we think about the Old Testament and we think about the New Testament, I pray that we would, um, that you would grow in us a depth in us, a knowledge of scripture so that we don't shy away from the Old Testament or from difficult passages, but rather we would embrace those for what they are. And Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just enlighten us, Lord, with how that fits into <clears throat> the comprehensive plan of Scripture. Father, I pray that as you move us in that way about Scriptures and about what it means in your comprehensive plan, I pray that you would encourage us that we are part of your plan. That you have a unique plan for our life and that we would spend our days pursuing it with all of our heart. Father, I want to pray for those who, um, who maybe have never declared Jesus as the Lord of their life. And maybe they've trusted their own salvation, whatever it might have been, their upbringing, their, um, yeah, whatever it might have been as they grew up. But for some reason, they've trusted something else for salvation. Lord, I pray <clears throat> that today would be that day of salvation. <clears throat> that you would um, allow them to see the hope of Jesus. I pray that the life that he has spoken about, the eternal life, would move them in a way that puts them in uh, a relationship with you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. 
If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.